This is a download from the BBC. To find out more, visit bbc.co.uk slash radio4. Hello on today's programme. The past may be another country, but here in the world of books, one thing is clear. From the Romans to the Renaissance, sex and politics dressed up as historical fiction sells. He does favour you above all others, she said confidentially to Anne. Anyone can see that he desires you. Indeed. Jane turned to me. Isn't it odd bedding a man who desires your sister? Ooh, ah. Amelia Fox, reading from the best-selling novel The Other Berlin Girl by Philippa Gregory. The book was, of course, made into a movie starring Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman, and such adaptations are proving just as popular as the books they spring from. With sales figures topping 20 million in 2010, historical fiction appears to be enjoying its own renaissance. Once derided as genre fiction, or worse still, books for women, it's undergone a profound transformation since the steamy bodice rippers and political potboilers beloved of the 50s and 60s. It's a makeover that reflects seismic changes in the academic discipline of history and changes in the wider society, like the search by contemporary, educated, emancipated women for like-minded forebears. So how does the historical novel speak to us now in the 21st century? To discuss the state of history in our novels, I'm joined in the studio by the author of The Other Berlin Girl, Philippa Gregory. Her latest addition to the genre, The Red Queen, was published in paperback last month and is already a bestseller. Sarah Dunant has written three novels set in Renaissance Italy and is currently writing her fourth, Blood and Beauty, about the Borgias, a family name as synonymous with sex and politics as the Kennedys. And Adrian Goldsworthy is a historian who dares to write historical novels. True Soldier Gentleman, the first in a series set in the Napoleonic Wars, was published in January, and the second, Beat the Drum Slowly, is out in August. Welcome to all of you. I, I wondered if I could just ask a, a general question, really, to start off. I mean, Sarah Gruen's Water for Elephants, set in the Depression and recently released as a film, is currently topping book charts on both sides of the Atlantic. Historical novels, as I said in the introduction, generated £20 million in sales last year in the UK alone. And I'm clearly not making this phenomena up. Why is it, do you think, that the historical novel is increasing in popularity in this moment in time? Who's going to grab that? Sarah? All right. Well, I think that in your introduction you put your finger on one of the reasons that it's enjoying such a renaissance, because of the level of the history that we now know about the past that we as writers can write about. So the landscape for historical fiction has grown absolutely seismically, away from just kings and queens and great battles into the minutia of everyday lives for people who we might have been in the past. Philippa, Adrian, would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the what people call the new scholarship, the new history, which came about from about the 1950s that started looking very much at the history of people whose history hadn't been told and then was very much you know, captured by the women's movement wanting to know about women's history as well. It's the result of that fantastic wealth of research, which is what the novelists are drawing on and which I think the audience really want to know about. Do you feel a new enthusiasm as a historian, Adrian? Well, it's slightly different because one thing historians tend not to do now, the academics, is tell stories, and they don't look at individuals so much. So I think there's almost a nice collaboration with novelists that they can present this in a way 
that is accessible, that makes it all very real and immediate, which it should be. I think of them doing the kind of deep vein mining. You know, there's <laughs> gold somewhere <laughs> in that rock <laughs> face, but we haven't got <laughs> the ability to get it out. As a result, almost all good historical novelists now actually pay their dues at the end of their books with bibliographies saying these are the books I could not have done this work without. Well, it's so interesting. We are working hand in hand. Well, Hilary Mantel's <laughs> Booker Award winning novel Wolf Hall clearly marked the embrace of the historical novel by the literary establishment. It won the Booker Prize in 2009 in a year when half the shortlisted books were historical novels and also claimed the newly endowed Walter Scott Prize for historical fiction. This year the likes of David Mitchell, Andrea Levy and Tom McCarthy are shortlisted. We spoke to Hilary Mantel and first asked how she succeeded in making Tudor life feel positively tangible and, to an extent, contemporary. I think the way Wolf Hall works is that it puts the camera on Cromwell's shoulder or in his hand, if you like, and it's a shaky handheld feel to this narrative, as if everything is swirling around you and you don't quite know where to position yourself for the best observation. I'm trying to catch the jittery flux of events to catch history on the hoof, as it were. He says to Wolsey, What age is the Queen now? She'll be 42, I suppose. And the King says she can have no more children. My mother was 52 when I was born. The Cardinal stares at him. Are you sure? he says. And then he laughs, a merry, easy laugh that makes you think it's good to be a prince of the church. I think that history is valuable for its own sake. If the reader wants to draw parallels with the contemporary world, that's fine. But I'm not sure that you should be forcing that into your text as you're writing. I feel I wouldn't be interested in doing that. I find the past in itself too absorbing. If all you think about is contemporary parallels, you are in a sense condescending to the past. You're saying we are more important and more advanced than they are, which is something that a novelist would always want to challenge. Hilary Mantel. Uh, Hilary seems to be suggesting there that the past is its own world, which we should respect, not condescend to it, the word she used. Uh, Philip, I wondered if you feel that you're offering a prism through which we can learn more about ourselves today. I mean, particularly with you, by reappraising the lives of, of these women who were off centre stage and, in terms of history, pretty much unrecorded. I think it's really important, and I know from the response of readers that a lot of people really like to read the book and, in a sense, fill in the gaps, you know, that, uh, all right, you know, we know that Henry VIII had six wives, but what we know about them is incredibly weak and incredibly stereotyped. Each wife, actually, is a very, very good example of that, the way that Catherine Howard has been written off as a kind of slut and the way that Anne of Cleves is written off as the fat, smelly one. And you go like, <laughs> please, you know, we know because we ourselves now live in a society where people are prepared to accept that women are more complex than merely how a man, one man, responds to them. So I think, in a way, it's quite welcome that one can start to look at the characters from the past and describe them. 
At the same time, I'm really conscious that if you're writing a historical novel, it has to do what it says on the tin. It has, for me, to be historically as accurate as you can possibly make it. It has to take in the new history wherever it's available. It has taken whatever history you can get your hands on. And it has to be a really good novel. For me, the real eye-opener was actually Antonio Bayat's possession in terms of I read that book and went, it is possible to write something based on the historical past, which is a transcendentally beautiful novel. Actually, this isn't a genre. It's not a cobbling together of two disciplines. It can be something quite extraordinary. Adrian, from a historian's point of view, how would you describe the, the function and responsibility, if you will, of the historical novelist in the 21st century? Well, there are some similarities to writing non-fiction history. If a historian goes in looking for a parallel, they'll find it. But whether the evidence really supports that or not is another matter. You tend to see what you want to. So I think you need that same acceptance of looking for the truth, looking at the information and, and accepting it, whatever it is, just trying to understand it and then present it on its own terms. So I think, as a historian... And I think all the best historical novelists do this naturally as well. You have to look for the truth. You want to get it right. And why do you think there are some periods that speak to us more than others? I mean, for example, the Tudors. You could imagine that we really went from the Tudors to the Second World War some of the time. <laughs> you know, just, And also certain periods that become popular all at the same time. You know, there'll be five films, six books, you know, all about one particular period in history. What does it tell us about our preoccupations in the present? Some of it's probably the simple thing that when somebody reads something about a period and thinks, wow, that's interesting or I never knew that about Catherine of Aragon, something like that, they'll want to read more. It's also history taught in schools is pretty much the Nazis and the Tudors these days. There's not a lot else. In my case, I'm writing a, a military adventure. There's an awful lot of those around these days at a time when most people in the West will not ever be in the army. They will not experience this thing other than looking on the television, which doesn't count. Although there are a lot of wars. There are, but at a distance. So is this an easy way in to think we understand things? Or for a writer to talk about some of those issues and, and perhaps a little bit about the people and remind you that these aren't just statistics, these are real people. Well, it's um, interesting you mentioned schools there because it is quite a controversial subject at the moment and, and history teaching is widely regarded, I think, as being at a very low ebb at the moment. Do you think that's part of the reason why people are buying historical fiction? Because it's all news to us, you know? Yes, definitely. Uh, well, I think not, not only that, but I know that my books are actually recommended by history teachers to their pupils as a way of, in a sense, enlivening the, the curriculum that they're teaching. Well, one of the things I wanted to take up was, in a sense, I think that there isn't the distinction between history and fiction that we're in danger of making. What we see is a lot of popular historians writing in a very, very narrative way. We see a lot of novelists writing very much based on the historical record as it's available. You know, I did my PhD, my first career was as an academic historian. It happened that I couldn't get a job <laughs> working in a university, but I could get my novel published. And most of the historical novelists who we would vulgarly call good historical <laughs> novelists, which, you know, really needs to be defined perhaps, are those who, who do the first half of the work as a research mm. historian and do the second half of the work as a novelist. Yes, and let's I define it, Sarah. All right, good that's historical that's novelist. what's so interesting about it is that if you do the research, the research constructs the story. Absolutely. It's not that you think, wouldn't it be fun to write a novel set in, I don't know, a nunnery? Mm. I'll just imagine how they all felt. Mm. Actually, the story will come from beginning to penetrate how they all felt. That will throw up the dilemmas, the confusions, the pain, the suffering, 
exploring the wonders of it all. Let's talk about your nunnery. Your most recent novel, Sacred Hearts, explored the situation for 16th century noblewomen, 50% of whom, an unbelievable statistic, this, were, were condemned to live in convents. I mean, the book certainly bears witness to, to female oppression, a significant part of the untold story of women's history. The themes range from forced imprisonment, sexual oppression, friendship and sacrifice. I think we should probably hear a quick extract. January the 8th, 1570, the convent of Santa Caterina, Ferrara. The girl's first night as a novice begins with a scream. It is midnight, the hours of the great silence, when to speak is a sin. But her voice splinters the dark as if she were being whipped by devils. If this goes on much longer, the watch sister will be knocking on our doors for matins and no one will have slept. A recipe for disaster in a well-ordered convent. Sacred Hearts, dramatised for Woman's Air on Radio 4 with Geraldine James as Suara Zuana. Uh, so they changed the book cover of your book in America because the woman on it looked like a, a woman wearing a burqa. And, of course, there are still women whose lives are prescribed by religious diktat in 21st century Britain. And I wondered if you were discouraged from setting your book in the present, whether writing about the past makes it easier in some ways to approach those sensitive and controversial issues. No, you issues. see, once again, it was not the contemporary that took me there. I became absolutely fascinated with the notion of a hidden history, that there was this very large group of women who we heard nothing about, but that over the last 20 or 30 years of history, we were beginning to be able to shine lights in there. And what was so amazing about it was that among, yes, stories of oppression and stories of women who didn't want to go in there, there were also extremely rich stories of creativity. And I suddenly realised that my 20th century version was, oh my God, all these poor women, they had no choice, was actually not a good way to write the book. That the way to write the book was to realise and I think maybe everybody has this idea, it's a very simple rule. You are living in a period of time when there is no future. It is their present. And those women are not sitting there thinking, ah, oh, damn it, the first and second wave of feminism is so much better. <laughs> they are living there in reality and making it work for them, and that's what's so wonderful. Of course there are moments when you are in the past, the present intrudes. And I would say that one of the most interesting things, and maybe this is a reason for some of the success of the contemporary historical novel at the moment, is that it's to do partly with religion. We are now living in a global political situation where religion has become enormously important again, to the great surprise, I think, of quite a lot of people living in the West. Now, if you really want to understand what it's like to truly believe and for your belief to define how you think and how you behave and the political decisions you make, then you're going to have to go back into history in order to experience that. How do you cope with that, Philippa, you know, when you're writing about women like Mary Boleyn or Margaret Beaufort or uh, Elizabeth Woodville? Because you are obviously viewing their experience, as you said earlier, through a kind of prism of your experience now in, in the 21st century, as Sarah was just describing. Of course you're there, and the reason that you're writing about them is because your consciousness is interested in them and you've done the research. But for me, I developed quite early on in this 
work that I'm doing, the style of first person, so I'm only ever one person, I'm not an omniscient narrator, I'm not lots of people, present tense. So mm. I only know what they know at the time. And that's been such a fertile, interesting way to go about it because it does mean that you tell, for instance, in The Other Bolin Girl, I tell the story of Anne Boleyn's execution from the point of view of her sister, who is privy to the negotiations which went on, which made it certain that she would be released. As Mary Boleyn, I really believe that's going to happen. So it makes the, the story so much more exciting. But also, extraordinary enough, it became very apparent to me that this was a story which hadn't been told because historians are cursed with hindsight. So everybody knows that the deal that Henry makes with Anne doesn't stick. And so, in a sense, it becomes a non-historical fact. It's certainly a fact that occurred in history, but it's of no interest because it didn't happen. But if you're living at the time, those at the time look to you like absolutely legitimate, likely choices, which explains a lot of the behaviour of the past, which sometimes looks to us, looking back, knowing what happens, like foolish mistakes. But actually, if you had been there at the time, you would have been doing the same. Adrian, do you think men like different sorts of historical fiction? I mean, your characters in True Soldier Gentlemen are a group of soldiers setting off for the Napoleonic War. What's your aim? Is it to tell a ripping good yarn or to uncover some truths about the past? Again, I hope both. I mean, in the end, it'll succeed or fail on whether people like reading it and whether it's enjoyable enough and the, the whole series to make them interested. The historian in me wants to get the world right, get the details right, to talk about these sort of lower-middle-class people that tend to get ignored because they're not dramatic enough. And there's lots of detail. There's lots of stuff I've discovered that I didn't know when I was doing the research. And to go into the apparently dull subject of things like drill, you know, that you see now with Trooping of the Colour, then it meant something. Then it was for a very practical reason. Men definitely read different history books. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to an open book special on historical fiction with me, Mariella Frostrup. For further details of all the books we're discussing, go to our website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4 and navigate your way to open book. Fiction set in the past may be flying off the shelves, but it seems we can't get enough of it on television either. TV has done a huge amount to popularise history, not just in its dramatisations of historical novels, but also in its flagship documentary series from the likes of Simon Charmer, Amanda Vickery and David Starkey that make history relevant to us, presenting it in a, a format and a language we can understand, drawing us into a world we think we can share. January 1901, the dawn of the British Empire's fourth century. Few of its servants or rulers imagined it would be its last. So what went wrong? Today we go to great lengths to guarantee our security and guard our private property. But when it comes to protecting personal privacy, the Georgians wrote the book. So a great ring of fortresses, like this one at Richborough in Kent, was built along the east coast of Britain to repel the raiders. But in vain. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> Adrian, you consulted on a, a BBC drama series about Hannibal, I think. Uh, what do you think the impact of television on the public perception of history has been, and indeed the effect then on the historical novel? There are bits that, as a historian, make you cringe when you watch some of these programmes. And there are bits not as a historian. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, particularly where they've invented something that's, that's duller than the reality. On the other hand, in general, I think it's got to be good. It gets people interested. 
you know, there are plenty of academics that started out watching Spartacus on television on a sort of bank holiday afternoon and reading Asterix books. You know, it has to start somewhere. Going back to the books, though, what about the thing Philippa was talking about earlier, which is that, and also Hilary Mantel does, and you do, Sarah, which is writing in the present tense. I mean, is that a key to making the past real, to, to emphasise the idea that you're kind of walking forward with your characters without knowing the end? Another thing that you brought up, Philippa, that sort of cinema verite view of history that television, I suppose, has perhaps fostered a bit. Yes, and I would say that it's historical fiction that's taken on the literary snobbery against the present tense and started to defeat it, actually. I once went on Amazon, as one does occasionally, and somebody said about a book of mine, doesn't she know that if things take place in the past, you can't use the present tense? (laughs) And I thought, oh, how really interesting, because, of course, I've thought a great deal about the kind of visceral immediacy that that I say, I feel, I think... I smell this gives me... And it's a very good tense for history. Adrian, historians would argue, of course, that empathy gets in the way of historical understanding, and yet it's kind of essential, isn't it, to a writer's craft? Do you think empathy is an aid to historical understanding? Yes, you need some of it, but if you're writing non-fiction, you have to restrain it. You can't get to the point where you've decided that Julius Caesar is this sort of person. So if there's no evidence, then that's what he would do. Whereas a novelist, that's perfectly acceptable and very right and proper. Uh, I'm, a, I'm quarrelling mm. with the question. Of course historians are empathic. The greatest historians have been passionately empathic. History is, I believe, an art and a craft, mm. and I think most people would now recognise that. So, for instance, you know, one of the greatest historians, one of the greatest histories, E.P. Thompson, Making of the English Working Class, is a passionate hymn to these forgotten people's struggles for justice. I was just about to ask you about that, <laughs> because, of course, it could be argued that popular culture in recent decades has just reflected this enormous sea change